This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It is Thursday, time to talk about all things municipal. And we are all abuzz about the upcoming mayoral race, even though the state of play is not that much different than what it was last week when we last talked about this. Sitting councillors Anna Bailau, Brad Bradford and Josh Matlow still would not confirm their intentions, though they are very happy to talk about how they're thinking hard on it, and also thinking about it, MPP and former Education Minister Mitzi Hunter, former City Councillor Rob Davis said he is in, along with Gil Penulosa and Blake Acton, who are the confirmed uh, candidates. We did get some clarity, as you heard in Bob's news, on who is not running, Mike Layton, who many saw as the great left hope, definitely said he will not run. Now, the answer from Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie was less clear when she was asked about possibly running to lead the provincial liberals. I have a lot on my plate right here in Mississauga. I love my city. I love my job as mayor. So much is happening in Mississauga, and I'm entirely focused on our issues and our growth right here in our city. Well, the one word I did not hear in all of this is no. And now it's time to tune into the town. And now I'd like to welcome David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto, Councillor Paula Fletcher, Ward 14, Toronto Danforth, and Councillor James Pasternak, Ward 6, York Centre. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone. Paula and David. Welcome. Hi, Libby. Hi. Uh, so, uh, Paula, you are a sitting councillor. Uh, what do you make of the state of play? We have three people who are all over the media not confirming they're running. I guess it's uh, still such early days after the mayor has resigned and people have to see what they can put together. It is a very expensive venture to run for mayor. It's well over a million dollars that you have to raise. Uh, so you don't want to put your toe in the water until you're really clear. And we'll only be making this seat um, saying that it's vacant on March 29th. So everything's on a fast track. So we'll just wait and see. But I don't think this is a starter job, Libby. I can talk about that a bit more later. Okay, well, uh, first, we, uh, we're we going to have to deal with your line, Paula. There's something strange on it. But, uh, uh, Councillor Pasternak, so I did a little math. According to my math, the spending limit for a mayoral race is around $1.6 million. But there was some discussion about whether uh, the limit would be lower given the much shorter campaign time. Uh, I mean, it, that's a lot of money to raise in a very short period of time. And is it needed when the by-election is coming up so quickly? Well, oh, under the Municipal sorry. Elections Act... Oh, sorry. Um, no, no, go ahead, James. Yeah, under the Municipal Elections Act, there's a calculation of a, of a, uh, a per, per eligible voter per diem, and then plus a flat a flat rate. Um, sure, the 1.6 million sounds high, but we've got a city of one point. We've got a city of three million people, close to three million people, and we've got about a six-week campaign. So um, I, I would say it's reasonable for for a city this size. Uh, the question is, can can the candidates raise it? Now they're not allowed to raise funds now, and nominations don't open till April the third. So while they're burning up the phone lines, they cannot raise any money, nor can they spend any money. Okay. There, there's an issue with your line, too, that we will deal with. Uh, David, what do you make of the state of play, and uh, are the sitting councillors just being coy? Oh, no, I don't think they're being coy. Uh, um, I think this is quite normal and natural, I think, particularly in a, in a race that's just of a sudden. 
Uh, this wasn't as if it was planned. Uh, so people have to sort of scurry around in their own minds, talk to their friends, talk to their associates. So I, I, I think they should take the time, not only because of the expense, but whether or not you can actually win is, is, is what you have to try and figure out. So I think it's entirely normal and natural. I don't hear any names that are surprising to me, and, and I don't think we're going to be surprised by the uh, entrance of any names that we have not yet seen or heard. Uh, do you think that it has to be a sitting councillor uh, or that they are or will be the front runners? Or do you think someone like a Mitzi Hunter, uh, who was the education minister, I, I don't know how high her name recognition and profile would be at the moment. Uh, do you think uh, someone like that could have some traction or do you really need that kind of big name recognition? I, I think there's a reason why historically... Uh, uh, there hasn't been an outsider, maybe once or twice, but you haven't had an outsider for the council. It, it's a it's a learned trade. It's a it's a thing. It's a very complicated world. It's not the same as the other two levels. The issues are clearer. The constituents are are smarter about the issues because they know the issues because they feel those issues. So I think it's a different kind of politics than at the other two levels, which are very often party oriented. Hmm. And and David, do you think that uh, whoever the candidates are will be able to raise enough money in such a short period of time if, in fact, the limit isn't changed? Well, I think they'll, yes, and they'll make that calculation. So if they announce, unless they're foolish, uh, but they will have already at least in their minds covered the, the cost or think they know well, how they'll be able to organize that. So I don't think you'll see very few people, I don't know of anybody, who would actually skate into it without knowing what it's going to cost and be willing to carry that burden. Hmm. Interesting. You know, yesterday I was talking to former city councillor Rob Davis, and I asked him about raising money because, excuse me, he has not been in the public eye for quite a long time. And he said, oh, he's more interested in in raising volunteers. Is is that going to help with something like this, Paula? Oh, um, I think their volunteers are important, but remember, this will be a election where there's no other elections going on. So normally in an election time, you've got a lot of action. You've got council action, you've got mayor action, you've got trustee action. This will just be with mayor. So having a reach that is through digital, through many other ways, I think it's going to be really important. I do think people will be running to have their name out there. But the front runners, whoever they turn out to be, will actually have to raise that amount of money, Libby. No doubt in my mind. And uh, they'll have to raise that amount of money. And uh, do you agree that the front runners will likely be sit- currently sitting councillors? I, I can't say that. I only have to agree with one of my favorite mayors of all time, that would be David Crombie, that it's not a starter position. You don't send an apprentice to build the CN Tower. It does require a certain amount of knowledge about the city. So that's what I worry about if somebody doesn't have that ability. And I think it even took John Tory a while to kind of get used to the city, how it's run. So there's a, I should be a leg up for people that know the system. And remember, it's an amalgamated city now, much different than the old city of York or the old city of Etobicoke. It's a, it's a hard thing to learn, and it's very close to people. You have so many divisions. It's not like any other level of government, and I'm glad David pointed that out so clearly. Uh, and uh, James Pasternak, so uh, is, do you think that's the case even for someone like Mitzi Hunter, who was a provincial minister. And of course, we saw uh, two provincial politicians, party leaders, jump to municipal in the last, in the October election, but of course, different municipalities, smaller ones. Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, outside of being prime minister, being mayor of uh, Toronto is the most uh, daunting political task in the country. Uh, running a, um, a municipality of this complexity is extremely difficult, and it takes an inside knowledge, really, of how municipalities work and how this one does. Um, you know, while, while people from other levels of government are welcome to throw their, their names uh, in, in the ring, I think Paul is correct. It took, it took a John Tory a good part of a year 
uh, to really get the handle on on uh, how the public service operates, how the council operates, the standing committee systems, how our relationship with other levels of government operates. And I think once he got a handle on it, I thought he did quite well. But uh, it is a daunting task for, for those coming in from other levels of government. Uh, yeah, and speaking of other levels of government, David, so there's uh, all this uh, flutter around the possibility of drafting Bonnie Crombie to lead the provincial Liberals, and uh, she does seem like she would be an attractive candidate, and to my ears, she did not say no. I think she has very high marks as the mayor of Mississauga. Uh, what do you think about all that? Yeah, I, I would t- have the same take, I think, as you uh, do. I didn't hear a no. Um, she is an attractive candidate, if I could say so. Uh, she she also served at the federal level, so she understands something of that uh, of the order of that level of government. Uh, and she's had a good record uh, in Mississauga. So I, I uh, uh, and certainly the Liberal Party has been out there trying to figure out where it's going. So yeah, I, I, I I'm not sure what she's going to be doing, but but it seems to me that that it's a, it's a good possibility. Hmm. And uh, uh, speaking of that, she was again, she wants to uh, have Mississauga uh, separate from Peel. Uh, but I think that that might be bad for Peel. I don't know what the province is thinking on that note. David, do you think that has legs? It's about one of the oldest uh, chestnuts around uh, in terms of uh, the size of Peel and the size of, the, of Mississauga uh, and the size of Brampton. I mean, I, it seems to me that it's time that they they put that uh, that chest up uh, to bed. Um, Mississauga is clearly, and so is Brampton, a city on its own. Yeah, because they're connected uh, uh, geographically, that's not that's not a, a big problem. All municipalities are connected geographically in the Greater Toronto Area. Hmm. All right, uh, and. Uh Paula Fletcher, uh, we were talking about other elections, and we don't have that distraction this time. And kind of this, just in, the uh, trustees of the Halton School Board are now have agreed to bring in a consultant to help them with this issue that has been dragging on for six months and caused enormous headaches uh, with this teacher who wears these prosthetic breasts with nipples to class. Um, I don't know. Uh, it, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, be careful who you vote for. Uh, shouldn't, <laughs> shouldn't an education board be able to deal with this in less than six months? Well, they do have a hot mess there. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a hot mess. I, don't, I just don't understand why it's so difficult to deal with, um, including in the school. But now they're going to bring a consultant. Uh, worst case scenario is that consultant will take three or four months or longer to give them an answer on what to do. <laughs> right at what? Well, I, probably two thousand bucks a day. Go ahead. I, I, I yeah, can't I say how much it would be. But, uh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Go ahead. Who's is that? Uh, James. No, no, I was. Uh, I was going to offer the thought that uh, Tom, the clothier from Kensington, could probably do it. A lot cheaper and a lot faster. <laughs> well, something. now we know where you get your suits, David. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Tom Tom is a big advertiser. Totally. <laughs> it's, I mean, the whole thing seems to boggle the mind. And, and they even met to put in a professional conduct thing, but it had nothing about a dress code. And... Uh, yeah, I, you know, in cases like this, it really is time for the ministry to step in. They've had other situations in other places where the ministry has had to step in and assist. And it just looks like they're uh, unable to have the leadership that they need to come to a conclusion. Well, yeah, and and uh, the minister, Stephen Lecce, did weigh in, and, and uh, they were all gnashing their teeth. Uh, James, do you have a view of this? Well, my uh, my days as the school board trustee come back, and it's my understanding under the Education Act and school board policy uh, that any major distractions in the uh, learning environment are, are are not really acceptable. Um, they're there to learn, to to build good character, um, to pursue their goals, and this is a major distraction for the school. So, if they want to hire a third party consultant to try and resolve that, 
um, I guess that's a prerogative as, as trustees. But my understanding is that, um, that schools are there to learn and that major distractions are, are, are really not welcome. Is there a process, uh, either David or Paula, to get rid of trustees if they're deemed not to be doing their jobs? No, the ministry does have the ability to step in and guide the board. So that's missing in this circumstance. And it's not the minister, but the ministry, you know, the bureaucrats that have to enforce exactly what James is talking about and give them advice. That's happened in Peel region quite a bit, actually. Oh, was it with the uh, with the last thing, the brouhaha over racism? Yes. So when there's a really critical issue and people are having a difficult time, then it is the ministry's role because they do have to guarantee that. At the end of the day, the buck stops there. Uh, David, uh, did you want to jump oh, in on I, this? I, I, could, I, 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 I want to take this seriously because it is important. It just seems that it can be and should be dealt internally could be dealt properly with the ministry in consultation. Uh, I, I, we just, it seems to have got away from common, common sense. And so it seems to me that the, the job is for the ministry and the, and the board uh, to figure it all out and do it quickly and quit embarrassing themselves. I, I mean, it's to me, it's it's completely ridiculous. I understand trans people don't want to be treated differently. Well, the rest of us, or especially females, we've got to cover our nipples at work. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's pretty basic. That is why things need to be sorted out very quickly. And I think yeah. the voices of the students uh, who are in the learning environment, who are all modern young folks, they probably can help get this figured out really quickly. Okay, so. yeah. We don't want to be talking about this much longer. It just it just seems completely ridiculous. Yeah. As David says, get it sorted out and stop embarrassing yourself. <laughs> Good advice. Back to uh, the mayoral race. Do you think that we have seen uh, the gamut of the candidates who will jump in? And, and how does having a lot of candidates change the way the thing sort of ultimately works itself out, David? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, I think that we probably, I, I would be surprised to see uh, a name come forward that we have not yet seen. But I think, I, I, I would at least like to take the opportunity to say, it. I think this is one of the most important elections in a long time. There will be a focus on issues because, uh, uh, on people for sure, on candidates, but to be a focus on the issues because there's very important issues such as housing and public maintenance and, and Ontario Place and Greenbelt and daycare. And healthcare, all of those things are really important issues, and they're changing rapidly. And we need to have a really good campaign. So I hope it's going to be on those issues. Um, and and Paula, I was I'm a little mystified by some of the commentary I read about the right left divide uh, because um, Mike Layton, you know, was characterized as a progressive candidate. But uh, you know, I, I think Anna Bailau, even though she was mentored by John Tory, uh, you know, she's pretty progressive. I, how how are the candidates seen on the council itself? Well, I would have to flip that around and say I think Anna Bailau mentored John Tory on the housing file and many other files that she knew very well. Uh, I don't think we should see this as a kind of uh, right, left, center. People have their views, but as someone pointed out already, there are no actual political parties at City Hall. Uh, there, You come together as a majority. The only thing that's really changed since the last election is this very silly, strong mayor legislation where the mayor can now veto things, where the mayor only needs a third of the council to pass something, where the budget belongs entirely to the mayor. I mean, local democracy needs to be restored, and I would not be supporting candidates that wanted to be the strong mayor. I want someone to be the mayor in the way David Crombie was the mayor, moving Toronto forward. Yeah, but uh, th that strong mayor power only applied to John Tory in this case. No, it's a legislation applying to the mayors of Ottawa and Toronto, right. which the mayor of Ottawa said he wouldn't use them. So I would hope 
our next mayor would say, well, those are silly. I'm not going to use those. I'm going to be the leader in council, but I'm going to be the leader, not the dictator. Oh, I, I see what you mean. But in this case, they the province has made it clear that Jennifer McKelvey uh, does not have strong mayor powers, and it seemed to me like they were making it pretty situational. No, it is it is only for the elected mayor, those powers. Only for the person that's elected as mayor in the city of Toronto and in the city of Ottawa. And then that elected individual can say, I'm choosing to use these powers or I don't believe I'm not going to, the same way as the mayor of Ottawa has done. David, Unfortunately, you... John Tory says he asked for them, and then he's using them. So that, to me, is a dividing line. It's a new element in this election campaign for mayor that's never been there before, Libby. Okay. David, do you agree? Is that going to emerge as an issue? Well, it could emerge as an issue. It, it would be important to see where each of the candidates stands on the matter, I think the public is not supportive of it. Certainly, I'm not. I think it's it's just a dumb move. It, it imbalances the council. The council works, and, and the city works well when the mayor has to work with the council, period. Okay, I am looking at the clock. It's time to start wrapping things up. Uh, James, what would you like to leave us with? Well, regarding the strong mayor power, I had always uh, argued that um, in John Tory's hands, it was going to be handled very rarely, if ever, and in a responsible way. But what happens about the future? What happens about a future mayor who may not be as responsible uh, with those powers? And that's why I felt uh, it was a risky move to bring down that uh, legislation. I think, in general, the people of Toronto have a choice between two futures, we have a fiscal crisis, affordability, homelessness, transit, wide range of issues that we have to tackle. And really, it's the most qualified candidate who can also put together the best campaign that will probably end up on top. Paula? Yeah, I'm looking for a smart, steady hand. No boat rocking at this point. We've had enough of that, Libby. Uh, stuck in this by-election, just out of a whole city election, so that's really important, knows the city, able to bring people together, good track record in bringing council together, local Democrat, understands what they're getting into. There is this big fiscal hole, as James has said, out of the pandemic, but not just going to cut everything, saying we can't afford to do anything. I think people want their city to lift up, not be driven down. And David Crombie, last word to you. Well, I, I couldn't say it better than the two who just spoke. Uh, that's exactly where we need to be. There are a lot, there are very significant issues that need to be dealt with. We need a mayor that's willing to work with the council and has the skill and ability to do so. And we also need a council that understands that its job isn't just to go after the mayor because they don't like him or her, that the issues of the day are really important. Uh, and, and, and the, uh, there's always been listed in, in today, but, the issues as they come out in the campaign will be very important because the public is looking for changes in those issues that are important to them. Okay. On that note, we wrap things up. Thank you so much, David Crombie, James Pasternak, and Paula Fletcher. Bye-bye. Thank you, Libby. Thank you Bye. Have a great day. Thank Bye. you. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, okay, so how to clear up the immigration backlog some bureaucrats think that we should just get rid of citizenship ceremonies. What do you think of that? The numbers before we go to break, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be back with that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I swear. I swear. That I will be faithful. That I will be faithful. And bear true allegiance. And bear true allegiance. To His Majesty. To His Majesty. King Charles III. King Charles III. King of Canada. King of Canada. Okay, well, that is a clip from 
obviously a very recent citizenship ceremony. And this is where new Canadians gather in a courthouse or some other venue and take the oath of citizenship in front of a judge. Now, I've witnessed quite a few of these, and I have friends who've participated, and I think they are very important rituals marking what should be a very important milestone. Well, now the suggestion is that instead of taking part in the ceremony, people could actually make their attestation when they're alone by computer and become Canadian with the click of a mouse. What do you think of that idea? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Yaniv Orr, who is the Chief Technology Officer here at Zoomer Media and a new Canadian, and Daniel Bernhard, who is the CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. Welcome, and let's begin with Yaniv. Thank you for having me, Libby. It's well, always a pleasure. And and we just noted, I think, just about all of our IT department are new Canadians. And when we say new Canadians, 15 years counts too. Well, yeah, as far as I know, all of us are basically new Canadians. That and, is correct. And uh, you got your citizenship just before the pandemic. Yeah, I got my citizenship okay. in August 2019. And it was a lovely ceremony. <laughs> So tell me about it. Well, it's a bit strange, especially for me, if you will ask almost anyone who knows me. I don't think the word sentimental will be the one that's used most no, often. No, no. Even when we were uh, considering you as a guest, like that came up. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, even I think that it is an important milestone and it was something that I looked forward to because it shows the path that you went through and it shows your commitment to your new country. And personally, I think it's going to be a huge shame if anyone ever cancels that because it is an exciting time for people that participate. And uh, what I read is that some of these bureaucrats think uh, it would cut maybe three months off the wait time. How long did you have to wait you know, beyond the time that was needed to qualify? Uh, for me, it was actually very fast. I needed to postpone my test and ceremony because I had a, a trip abroad. And even that got rescheduled within less than a month. So uh, at least before COVID, there was no real backlog as far as I remember. It was fairly quick. As soon as I was eligible, I got summoned to do the test. And following that, three weeks after that or something like that, the ceremony. Okay, so uh, to make it go a little faster, you don't think it's a good idea? Uh, no, and I hope that most candidates will also uh, agree that it's worth the extra wait, because it is an important and exciting moment, and at least it was for me. Well, I, I have to say, and this is uh, thanks to uh, my brother Moses, but when I was at City TV, we used to have citizenship ceremonies in the newsroom live on Canada Day. And even as someone who was not participating, I found them very emotional. Like I could barely keep my eyes dry watching them and just watching the people and the families there and how they reacted. I mean, it was an extremely moving thing. Well, it is. For many people, it's not a short process. People tend to forget that immigrating to a different country is a very long and cumbersome process for people, not just from uh, a cost perspective, but also takes a lot of time. There's a lot of forms that are involved. It can take years until the full process is finalized. And the culmination of that is a, a major milestone. So it's going to be very, very difficult to some people to truly feel connected without actually experiencing a significant milestone at the end of such a process. Well, that's a really good point because it's not easy. Uh, I'd like to bring in Dennis Bernhardt, CEO of the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. Hi, Dan Daniel, excuse me. I know a Dennis Bernhardt, so I apologize for that. I'd like to meet him. Sounds like a lovely fellow. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah. He's a pretty good tennis player, too. Um, so what do you make of this idea? 
I think it's important to understand the origins of, of this announcement. Um, the Minister of Immigration a year ago was responding to a huge amount of pressure because of the massive backlog in the system. At that time, there were almost 2.8 million people waiting in line for some form of immigration paper to be processed. And so he announced a spate of measures to try and speed things up, and one of them was this written attestation option. I think that the good news is that the backlogs, at least in the category of citizenship, are going down. Um, and unfortunately, however, we're, we're still stuck with this, this, um, this, this regulation now, which is going to say that basically you can click a box from anywhere in the world and become a Canadian citizen. It's like, uh, you know, going through university and just getting your degree in the mail without a ceremony or, or going to, to get married by just signing a contract with, with no reception or anything like that. So we are missing out as your, as your previous, um, speaker just said, on a really important lifetime milestone for people who are becoming Canadian citizens, but also it's an important opportunity for people like you, who you were just saying, Canadians who've been here for a longer time to participate in this and show that citizenship is important. So maybe this can be modified to be reserved for like really extreme cases where people have been waiting a really, really long time because there are harms that, that arise from this. Uh, some people are stuck in the country waiting for their ceremony. So there are some people who are in a bind, but hopefully this would be the exception and not the rule. Okay. Uh, let us take a call. Good question from Jeff in Brampton. Hi, Jeff. Yes, hi. Uh, I was talking to your screener. Like, this is a huge opportunity for scammers to uh, get fake identities in Canada. It's ridiculous. Okay, you know what? We have our IT guy. He knows all about scams. Yaniv, do you, do you see that as a problem? Uh, potentially, yes. If someone will start scam campaigns, per- basically impersonating Canadian authorities to try and get people to don't give them ideas. Information. Oh, trust me, they had the ideas well, well before I said anything. But yeah, it, it is definitely an opening and someone might take advantage of it as well. Daniel Bernhard, is this a fait accompli or, or uh, are we still debating this? Yeah, we're reacting to proposed changes to regulation. So, no, this is not a fait accompli, and uh, the government is still accepting comments. We'll we'll see where this all ends. Okay, yeah. Um, again, you know, it just seems like the wrong thing to get rid of, and I'm glad Jeff called with that. I hadn't even thought about that, but th- there are so many other scams online. Why not this one? Anything that can work will be tried at least once. And if it gets enough people hooked, it will grow a life of its own. Let's take a call from Michael in Bolton. Hello, Michael. Yeah, hi. Um, I came over in uh, with the family in, in 1949 from, from England. And um, I didn't get my citizenship. I, I remember now getting it up in, in Newmarket, uh, I guess at a courthouse up there. Uh, it was about, um, um, I was about 40 years, maybe 50 years after I, I'd come to Canada, but it was, it was quite an interesting experience though. What, the ceremony? Yeah, yes, it was. And why did you wait that long? I don't know. I never thought about it. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I look at my citizenship card and I say, you know, well, I don't know why I waited so long to, to get my, my citizenship, but anyway. It didn't really matter, but I, I guess it did if when you cross the border and now you can tell them, you know, where you're from with your, and your passport. Yep. Okay, Michael, thanks for that. I guess it's easy. Michael obviously grew up here uh, and he has, uh, he sounds like other Canadians exactly. So I guess that might have gone into it a bit. Well, I'm also assuming it depends on what his previous passport was. Different British. people will yes. have different issues when they want to leave Canada and go to different countries. So it's also a very desirable passport compared to many others of immigrants that come here. That's right. And and some of them, uh, uh, much to uh, their chagrin, you know, are still considered citizens of the old country. And that can be very problematic. That's a whole other issue, like Iranians who get detained. Um, but again, like to me, this just, this just seems like out of all the things you want to cut, this seems like really just the wrong one. Cause I would think that for the person taking part, it's like, again, like taking part in your wedding. I, I mean, I remember 
in the dark ages, you know, people asking is, is there any different, you know, is there any difference to being married and not being married? And I wouldn't have thought there was, but there is. Well, I can't speak to that. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, again, as I said before, I do think it's a milestone. And even someone who's not considered sentimental like myself, I did appreciate the the ceremony and everything around it. And it's something that you work towards. It's like learning something and then not getting to show that you know something or trying to finish university without having any tests at the end that actually show how far you've gone and what you actually learned and where next you're going to go and visit. And I I don't know, it, it does seem a shame for me. I don't think there would be any objections to that, quite frankly. Uh, Daniel, um, do you know, have, what has the general response to this been? People think it's a good idea or, uh, is there, are there enough objections that the immigration department might back off of this? So in general, I think there are a very small number of people who think it's a good idea and they're the people who've been waiting in line forever to finally get this done. Um, and they're tired of waiting. But the general public, including uh, including newcomers and recent citizens, uh, in my review of the commentary anyway, seem to overwhelmingly um, dislike this idea. I think it's also, um, your last caller raised an interesting point about taking a long time to become a citizen. And um, this is another kind of part of the picture that people need to, to consider. Um, We've released some numbers at the Institute for Canadian Citizenship a couple of weeks ago showing that the percentage of permanent residents who are becoming Canadian citizens within the first 10 years of, of arrival has dropped 40% since 2001. So the overall desirability of Canadian citizenship is in freefall. The, the market value of becoming Canadian is really crashing. For me personally, I think for a lot of your listeners, this will be very, very alarming. And so... This change now takes place in the context of Canadian citizenship becoming less desirable. And we're saying one of the few things that makes it special, that, you know, is festive and joyous and that allows the community to participate. Um, we're proposing that we might not do that anymore. Um, that kind of further um, cheapens uh, Canadian citizenship and, and, you know, aggravates this negative trend. Instead, we should be making Canadian citizenship more special and more desirable um, and ceremonies are one way to do that. And and do we know why uh, it's dropping? Is it just because maybe uh, permanent residents uh, can't see? I mean, they can do whatever they they can work and and live here and everything without getting the citizenship. I mean, they can't vote. Um, that would be a, a major a major difference. But you know, hey, we live in Toronto, and in the last um, mayoral right. election. Only 29% of people who could vote bothered to. So you can see why, um, if Canadian citizens aren't so big on voting, why other people wouldn't be uh, so keen on, on getting that right either. Um, there are, there are other benefits of, of having citizenship, but I think that the, the, the lack of commitment, you know, um, this, this lack of citizenship is not just a legal status, right? It's a belief. It's saying that this is my place and these are my people. And, you know, I, I'm born in Canada. My parents came. Um, just before I was born, and uh, this was the end of a uh, of a generations long struggle. I mean, my family has been on the run for like a hundred years. You know, when my daughter was born, she was the first person in our family to be born in the same country as her parents in over a hundred years. <laughs> Canada has been peace and prosperity for us, and citizenship is a real marker of that. That we've arrived, we've landed, we found our home, and that has implications for future generations. It's so meaningful and significant. You can tell that people who go through this process really appreciate it in that moment. Our organization, we host 60 enhanced citizenship ceremonies every year. So we do like more than one a week. I get to see this across the country all the time. And the experience that you've described, both of you, is exactly what happens. And it never gets old. You can never go to too many of these things. They continue to be unique and emotional and moving. It's so valuable for the rest of the country. So in the context where being Canadian, people are less excited about that. This is one of those areas where we can remind um, permanent residents why it is special to be Canadian and hopefully incentivize or encourage more of them to, to, to take that final step. Okay, we've got time for one more call. Danny in Etobicoke. Hi, Danny. 
Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I couldn't agree more than 120% with the, with the last speaker. I mean, my parents came here in the 50s. I remember helping them study for this test, all of the, 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 the pomp, the pageantry that went with it, and they still have the certificate up in their wall. It's just, it's unbelievable. I think we're just losing all the pomp and pageantry and the importance of what your previous call Where, where do they and, come from, Danny? Uh, Italy. So w- there was a language issue as well. Oh, absolutely. And and you know what? They 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 loved Canada. It was a privilege. It was it was their honor to be here. It, it's just incredible that, that we're just getting rid of these things that mean so much. It, it seems like everybody wants to fast track. You know, fast food everywhere. And they they got to stop this. They've got to keep it. And, and like the previous call, the speaker said, we we have to put it back into where the importance of it and, and, and share that with everybody and make sure that when people come to Canada or any Canadians for that matter, that it, it is, it's a privilege to live here. Okay. Danny, thank you for that. Very nice thought. Yaniva, I'm going to give the last word to you. Well, uh, I think a lot of good points were raised and I do hope that out of everything that was said, at least one thing will be taken into consideration that even if they want to move forward with something like that, it should be the exception on very specific cases and not the rule because it will be a shame if everyone will be not able to participate in such ceremonies in the future. Okay. Good thoughts. Thank you so much, Yaniv Orr and Daniel Bernhard. Uh, thanks a lot. And um, thanks, callers. I'm sure this is going to come up tomorrow and Free For All Friday. Right now, we're taking a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to the province's chief financial accountability officer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The province's Financial Accountability Office has released its report for the third quarter. And once again, the Ford PCs are spending less than budgeting, budgeted. This has the opposition crying foul. But what do those numbers mean for the rest of us? I'm joined by Peter Weltman, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm doing great, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. So uh, where did the government uh, fall short in its spending and what's happening to that money? So great questions. And that was the whole purpose behind the report is to, to, is to highlight that where there were changes to the spending plan or where the government has had a plan to spend and then their actual spend hasn't quite lined up. So we've seen some things like, um, uh, you know, they haven't spent quite as much in public health as they plan to spend. <clears throat> $600 million. And you might ask, well, why is that? Well, we haven't had the public health crisis. A lot of that money was set aside to deal with COVID and other public health crises. That has started to go away, so they haven't had to spend it. Another one I think is worth pointing out is uh, the electricity subsidy. They underspent so far by $655 million. And why is that? Well, we've had a very warm winter, so electricity consumption has been a way down, <clears throat> and the subsidy is tied to consumption. Oh, to consumption, because I was going to say we've had a very warm winter, but those bills are up. The bills are up, but the volumes are down. And these and the bills that are up really, I think, are gas, natural gas. I I know mine is. Um, And those prices have gone up. Uh, But consumption electricity has gone down. And that's, again, where the the subsidies are tied to. But then you had another question, which was, where is this money going to go? Uh, what are they going to do with it? And that's something that would be worth asking asking the government. Oh, okay. Uh, in the past, uh, where has the money gone? I'm assuming some of it has gone just to, uh, you know, spruce up their deficit numbers. Well, you know, we'll see in the next quarter because that's this. You know, this is the third quarter. Still, uh, three more months left in the fiscal year. And uh, that's often where we see a lot of uh, changes and additions, and there's usually a fair bit of money that gets spent in the final final bit of the year. So we'll be able to better answer that question. But certainly, if that money is not spent or not reallocated, then yes, it'll go straight to uh, reducing the, the deficit and uh, reducing the government's debt. And uh, why is it, it seems like a lot of money is often spent right at the end of the year, and sometimes people have pointed out that uh, in some departments and in some cases of government spending that the money is just being spent uh, for the sake of spending because their budgets will be cut if they don't spend it all. Oh, that's not entirely, that's not always true. 
Um, so the end of year spending is something we'll probably talk more about in the next report. Uh, a lot of uh, programs that get rolled out in the middle of the year, sometimes they take a little while to get to get up and running, and that's pretty normal. I think the childcare piece is interesting because there was some underspending in childcare, and we know that there's been some rollout problems. There's uh, folks haven't signed up, the, the, the providers haven't signed up in the numbers that the government expected them to, and that's that's perfectly normal with new programs. So sometimes there's a catch-up that happens, and that's why you see some of this in the fourth quarter. The other thing you see a lot in the fourth quarter is a lot of accounting adjustments because of the way Ontario's books are structured. <clears throat> So there's a lot of regular bookkeeping that happens. Uh, so those are pretty those are pretty typical. The thing that I get concerned about though is on the the un, when the underspend amounts get very large, which are starting to be, is uh, to me that's a bit of a, a lack of, of transparency on the budget plans. The MPPs approve a budget, they approve a spending plan, and if the government is has you know is not spending. The, the, the money in the way that the MPPs had approved or is spending less than what was approved, there should be some ability to ask the government as to why these things are happening. And there's often some valid reasons. Hmm. And uh, the uh, caveat that I brought up, you're saying that doesn't happen very often where uh, departments rush to spend money just so that they'll get their budget the next time around. Well, I think sometimes... You know, and I, I can't speak to it because there's a lot of departments and a lot of different behaviors. But uh, it's budgets aren't usually set based on what you, you know, necessarily what you spent last year. And the other thing too is that the amounts that we're talking about, if you know you're really trying to buy pencils or whatever the case is for the next fiscal year, it's not a lot of money relative to the, you know, the billions of dollars that uh, might be not being able to get out the door because of some demand issue or like I've said before, you know, 655 million didn't get out the door because of electricity because there hasn't been the demand. So those numbers are far bigger than whatever departments might be trying to spend for, for year end. So it's hard to, it's hard to really assess the whole, that whole year end spending thing. I'm looking at the sectors and the one that I find disturbing uh, is health. So, there's a big gap here, uh, but we keep hearing about how there's no money um, and things have to change, but the money earmarked for health has not all been spent. That's right. Now, again, that's the beauty of this report. So as I said before, there were some, there are some good reasons for that. One of them is a big chunk of money in health that was the public health piece that hasn't been spent because they haven't needed to because the demand for the public health measures to combat COVID uh, just haven't materialized. So that's money they could reallocate and they could certainly reallocate it to other aspects of the health sector. Uh, we just don't know, you know, what they've decided to do there. I and mean, we've seen in some of the government's more recent figures that they have uh, added some money into the health sector and other sectors. So we'll, we'll be able to capture that better in our in our fourth quarter. But those are important questions to be asking the government. You've got six hundred odd million you didn't have to spend in public health. What are you going to do with it? Good question. And so uh, what are some of the questions, uh, aside from what you've just told us about, that will become clearer in the next quarter? Well, I think the healthcare piece will become clearer. I think there's some spending on infrastructure that we've noticed that the municipal transit infrastructure uh, expenditures, uh, other infrastructure expenditures have been very, very low, very tiny piece of the budget. Typically, those are because projects never usually start and end on time and they get delayed, so the work can't, doesn't happen until another quarter. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, the government has put a lot of stock into into building and building out and adding infrastructure. It'd be interesting to see how, you know, if they're able to actually get that done. Uh, and the money will show us, you know, if, if that if that uh, project, if that plan is getting done. Uh, we were just talking about uh, municipal politics earlier, and there is a great, big, gigantic hole in the finances of Toronto. So, is there anywhere that you could see where there's some contingency for that if the province says yes, and if not, where would money come from for that? So, there's certainly the the the, the province has provided some funding to Toronto uh, in their since you know subsequent to this report and there's certainly we can see in the underspending uh, so far and if that trend continues I mean right now they've underspent just over five percent normally an underspend is around two and a half percent 
Uh, and that's normal because governments are not allowed to overspend. It's against the law. So they're always going to underspend. But two and a half has been the historical average. Now we're up to five. That's high. It's unusual. Um, there's certainly potential money there if they needed to, uh, you know, to provide more money to Toronto or, or others. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's, it's not coming out of any particular pot? Well, we don't know right now. I mean, there's, there's some money. That, again, if you're underspending on health, for example, as we talked about public health, <clears throat> uh, we, there, there's a process within the government to move that money to a different sector. So Treasury Board, the Treasury Board of Government will review it. They'll have a meeting and then they'll make a decision. And for all I know, they've already made that decision and we'll see those show up in the fourth quarter. Uh, but I don't obviously have, I'm not, I'm not on the board. I don't know what, what they've decided, but they have that opportunity to do so. And the other thing they have an opportunity to do is they do have money in a contingency fund, which we sort of talked about earlier. They have a lot of money in contingency and they could take some of that money, which is unallocated at the moment, and they could directly allocate it to something like municipal budget issue. Now, I'm, I'm looking at what you just said. So they are underspending. Uh, the rate is double. Uh, it, I mean, uh, I'm trying to phrase this in a way that you can answer it. Um, is it to give themselves more wiggle room when it comes to what to do? Or how else would you explain this double the ordinary rate? So that's a, that's an, a good question. I don't, I can't explain it just now. I mean, I've talked about a couple of examples where the demand just didn't materialize, and those are all very valid examples. Where my concern is, is the trend in the underspending rate. I can understand we had a pandemic. We're going to make a lot of, there was a lot of crisis in the system. It needed a lot of money. It was a one-off sort of thing. And it's normal to have you know, numbers that don't meet the historical average. But now we're past that and things are starting to settle down. And I would normally expect to see the underspending trend kind of go back to where it used to be. Um, So I'm going to be very keen to see what the fourth quarter holds, see if that underspending trend uh, actually materializes at the end of the fiscal year. Okay. Anything else you want to leave us with? The reason I get hung up on underspending is because, again, it's a transparency issue. If you're asking for money that you either don't know if you can spend or don't intend to spend, um, it's not transparent with, with MPPs who are approving it and the public who are whose money you're spending. And secondly, if you need more money as a government, you always have the option of going back to the legislature. With, there's a process uh, to do that. Uh, and it requires the government to come back and say, okay, we need more money, as they did in, pa- in the pandemic. We need more money. Here are the reasons. Here's how we intend to spend it. And it adds transparency to the system. Okay. Peter Weltman, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Libby. Great to have you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right. And that is all the time we have for today, Free For All Friday. Coming up tomorrow, lots to talk about, and we'll talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.